Welcome back to The Foreign Desk. I'm Lisa Deftari. On today's show, strategy talk. What can the U.S. actually do to help Iran's protesters? Iran's protests now entering the fourth week as the death toll climbs, as the protesters become more and more courageous to overthrow their regime. We hear about U.S. support, but what does that even mean? What can the U.S. do? What should the U.S. do? What shouldn't the U.S. do? We will get into that uh, in it with a deep and a deep dive and a in-depth conversation with my A-team, as I call them, three of our Iran experts who have served in the U.S. administration. We purposely brought in three who have been on the front lines, who have worked on the Iran issue, and can tell us what the U.S., what the White House can actually do to help the movement that's on the ground in Iran. I'd like to welcome our panelists. First up is Len Kudurkovsky, who has come back onto the show <clears throat> so many times so that I can actually now pronounce his name properly. He's a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, Senior Advisor to the U.S.-Iran Envoy, and most recently, the co-founder of the Yalla Show, which is about positive news from the Middle East. And next up, we have Bijan Kian, twice confirmed advisor to the White House under three consecutive administrations, reporting directly to Presidents Bush, Obama, and serving as a deputy lead for President Trump's landing team, and an Ellis Island Medal of Honor recipient and globally recognized expert on the economy in national security. Welcome to the show, Bijan. And of course, last but certainly not least, Victoria Coates, who is now senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation, former Senior Policy Advisor to the Secretary of Energy, Deputy National Security Advisor for Middle Eastern and North African Affairs under President Trump. And before that, National Security Advisor for Senator Ted Cruz. And of course, what many people don't know about her, a PhD in art history and author of David Sling, A History of Democracy in 10 Works of Art. Welcome to the show, Victoria. And welcome to you all. Uh, as I said in the intro, we bring you to this discussion because we have not had a, a constructive conversation about what actually can be done, what should be done, what should people be asking the government to do, uh, what can our government do, and uh, you know how, how can we see this movement forward? Um, you know, Len, I want to start with you. You were a senior uh, advisor to the U.S.-Iran uh, envoy. And um, I'm sure you're watching the news and, and screaming at the TV, watching our current envoy. Uh, if uh, anyone missed the news, we had it on the foreign desk late last week that our current envoy, Robert Malley, came out and actually said, although we support verbally support the protesters on the ground in Iran, the U.S. will not support a policy of regime change in Iran. Len, um, it's one thing if we think that way, it's one thing if the United States isn't going to follow that path, but why would they come out and say it? And why why would they do that now? Um, well, thanks for having me again, uh, Lisa. It's uh, great to be on with uh, such a distinguished panel. Um, and I appreciate uh, your you, you lending your voice uh, to the uh, Iranian people's movement. Um, look, Unfortunately, the policy of the Biden administration, as personified by Rob Malley, um, has taken us off track. Um, we have, uh, in the Trump administration, as you well know, have um, uh, you know pushed the regime to its weakest point since 1979 uh, through a policy of maximum pressure, and that's uh, diplomatic pressure, economic pressure, 
uh, 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 tactics of deterrence that, that we've implemented, uh, being extremely vocal on, on the behalf of the people, uh, uh, not just sanctioning regime, but um, following through and enforcing our sanctions, which is a big gap between what we've done and what is happening now. But um, the, the uh, unfortunately, uh, as we've seen from the protests going on in Iran today, the regime no longer has any legitimacy, if it ever had any. Um, and uh, the only legitimacy it has been provided is by folks like Rob Malley, who have uh, tried to maintain a fig leaf of some um, negotiation with uh, uh, with a regime that has no credibility among its own people. The people have spoken. They've been speaking for decades. They've intensified over the last uh, you know five to ten years. Uh, the the murder of Masa Amini uh, follows the murder of Navid Afkari. It follows uh, other uh, young people who have been. Uh, tortured, imprisoned, uh, executed, and uh, the Iranian people have had it, and it's just a matter of time before the regime collapses. I just hope that uh, the Biden administration or, or any of our allies in the world do not uh, lend it the credibility that it does not have. Now, Len, I want to ask you, because you, you were in that seat, how much power or um, authority does the Iran envoy have in deciding the final call on what the U.S. foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis Iran will be? Well, you know, I, th I think it's uh, different from administration to administration and, and the envoy's job or the, you know, as, as the position is called, the U.S. special representative for Iran, the job is to advise the secretary of state. So in the end, uh, Secretary Blinken is just as, if not more, responsible for the administration's actions on Iran. Um, and yes, the, you know, the, the envoy does have a strong role to play in, in um, you know, as you've seen, negotiating details of, uh, of our relationship, uh, working with our allies to either empower or, um, or, or weaken the regime. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, you know, the representative for Iran brings ideas and options to the table for the Secretary of State, and the Secretary of State decides um, how, how we're going to proceed in our diplomatic, um, you know, path, but mm -hmm. the, the Secretary of State then has to take all of this to the President, and in the end, the buck stops at the White House. So, right. you know, even though we've seen Rob Malley um, travel back and forth from Washington to Vienna, and elsewhere, uh, in the end, the buck stops with Joe Biden, and he only is empowered to do what Joe Biden is allowing him to do. So I mm -hmm. think we have to remember that and um, and hold all of the uh, top officials responsible. Now, what's interesting is that upon this news that the you know the White House will spoken by Rob Malley, will not follow a uh, policy of regime change. So many of the comments, and there were thousands, under our posts um, said, we don't care what they think. We're going to do our own revolution. We're going to still continue. We're, you know, the, the Iranian people showing that it doesn't matter what the White House thinks and it doesn't matter what course they take. But we all know that that's not true. And that's not what they what they truly believe and, and want for their future. But 
you know, Bijan, I'm going to come to you because obviously you are um, Iranian and you are in touch with so many people on the ground and you're watching this um, unfold, both as somebody who has had, you know, a role in the administration, but also somebody who's been on the ground in Iran and know the patchwork of the people and what they're experiencing and, and what it takes to create a revolution. Why is it, though, that we are asking the United States for help, meaning what role will support from the United States look like and how does it figure into this equation of creating a revolution? Can a revolution happen in Iran without U.S. support? Uh, first of all, Lisa, uh, good to be with you and my dear friends, uh, Victoria Coates and Len Kodakovsky. I'm honored to be on the panel with them. Uh, you know, I think the United States today, its administration has chosen the path of irrelevance at best and a very dangerous position of trying to discourage the Iranian freedom-seeking people to give up their fight against an enemy of the United States. So this policy doesn't make sense to me. I'm a student of these affairs, and it just doesn't make sense to me. When Mr. Malley conveying the wishes of the White House makes such a strong announcement that we're not after regime change, who exactly is he trying to please? And whose benefits exactly is he following? I'm baffled because this statement certainly is not needed. As you said it so correctly, the freedom fighters on the streets of Tehran are actually looking at Mr. Malley and saying, Mr. Malley, we don't really care what you say. We don't really care what the White House wants to do. We're fed up. We're done with this regime and we're going to finish it off. That's what the response is. So. Uh, certainly, if Mr. Malley is trying to appease the uh, counterparties to Vienna conversations, uh, which is useless in my humble opinion, uh, then he's failing miserably because people are not listening. They don't care. Now, uh, your question is on the strategy. The first thing the United States needs to do is to consider staying quiet because sometimes the best option, if you can't help, is stop hurting and this statements like this hurts the cause of freedom the second thing the united states can do and i have to be appreciative of the steps taken by the treasury department to issue an ofac license for satellite and communications equipment that's all well that's fine thank you that's wonderful however how do we get the equipment in the hands of the iranians the strikers they need money they need to feed their families there is no way to get money into Iran reliably. I have some thoughts. There are five foreign banks operating inside Iran. Four of them are connected to the regime, therefore useless. One of them is the Standard Chartered PLC of London, a British bank that is expected to some degree to be able to conform with the norms of international banking and standards of safety and soundness in these situations. Why can't that bank be used to allow, or we don't expect, I mean, Lisa, you asked the question, what can be done? I've been scratching my head as to what can be done, but I found a very easy way. Listen to the Iranian people. They will tell us in no uncertain words, in no uncertain way, what they need. They said, look, we're gonna go on protest and we're gonna go on strikes. These two coupled together, we believe will bring this tyrannical terrorist government to its knees, and we will get rid of them once and for all. What we need 
is satellite equipment in our hands so we could communicate safely with each other and organize activities against this terrorist regime. And, you know, I'm not inciting violence here. I'm just saying this is what the people want to do. Right. And we better listen to them. They're on the ground. They know exactly what they need. They know exactly what they face. So I gave up trying to come up with solutions on my own. Instead, I decided I'll listen to them. And this is what I'm conveying to you and to our colleagues and to whoever wants to listen in the United States government. The people of Iran are not saying help us because we are under a tyranny or that you have a humanitarian obligation. They're not saying that. They're saying do it for yourself. They're saying this regime is against all that the United States stands for. Why are you sending it a lifesaver? Right. Why are you helping it? Exactly Help us right. Instead, they're saying don't send them money. We don't expect you sending American money to us. Just open the doors so that the expat community who's ready and willing to help their brothers and sisters in Iran can do that. Facilitate it. It's superficial to say we issue a license, but how is it going to get there? Which bank is going to accept a, a direct deposit into Iran? And how do we make sure it gets to the right hands inside Iran? Lisa? Right. And uh, Victoria, to that point, how do we get this administration to be on the same page? It's crazy to have watched this trajectory, right? I remember as a graduate student, I went to a subcommittee of Congress in 2005, and um, I made a documentary about a, a, a democracy movement, an underground democracy movement uh, in Iran and presented the third choice because our government has always bounced back between two extreme options when it comes to Iran's regime, either bomb them or let them get the bomb, right? Extreme right and extreme left wing uh, talking points, propaganda really. And I presented what we call the third option, which is the people of Iran and allowing another grassroots movement to come about, which definitely has had has happened in the last um, 15 years or so since, since I'm telling you the story. Um, and now, you know, every time in the last 15 years, you talk about sanctions, I'd be called a traitor. If you talked about stepping away from the JCPOA, the, the nuclear uh, negotiations, we, you'd be called, you know, a warmonger. Um, how is it that now we have certain talking heads, as a matter of fact, even Iranian expats who have always been apologists for the regime or been on the wrong side of this, all of a sudden they think sanctions are a great idea. And all of a sudden they're saying no to the nuclear deal. What will it take? And, and why has it taken so long, I should say, first and foremost, for this messaging to really come from the White House to say, if we place sanctions, yes, they will hurt the Iranian people, but they will also do X, Y, and Z in the long run, and that's what the Iranian people want. Or if we step away from the, the, the nuclear negotiations, it will be X, Y, and Z. Why has there been such a, a, a failed uh, messaging, and what will it take for everyone to be on board for this to truly be a bipartisan issue for the people of Iran? Well, thank you, Lisa, and thanks, Dijon and, and Len, for joining us today. This is a, a wonderful opportunity to grapple with a very serious subject. I think, you know, unfortunately, this White House, you're seeing a White House that's very, very weak. It's in disarray. They can't organize their response to anything, be it Afghanistan or Ukraine or the protests in Iran. And they face a real challenge here because of the popularity of these protests. It's, it's, it's hard to stand against young women burning their hijabs in the, in the street and standing up for their rights. 
And so they, they face a PR problem. So you have someone like Rob Malley coming out and saying, oh, we, we like the protesters, but we're going to stay in Vienna. And that's the key di disconnect. You cannot stay at the negotiating table with this regime, with the goal of enriching them and stand with the people that they are oppressing in the streets as you negotiate. Right. It's, it's simply internally conflicted. It can't work. So first and foremost, they have to walk away from the table. And then, uh, you know, you can send the message to the people of Iran. At least we're not going to pay these people to slaughter right. you in the streets. Right. How can we expose this disconnect that you speak of? Well, I think, I mean, I think that's just it. You can't get let Mali get away with giving an interview and having, you know, talking out of both sides of his mouth. And I think the key there is the Congress because, uh, you know, the administration is going to do what it's going to do. But Congress, which has much longer tenure than any individual administration, can send the clear signal that if there is a return to the JCPOA that is implemented by any means, except passing it through the United States Senate as a treaty, they're gonna pass uh, preemptive sanctions on any country that does business with Iran. So you know the, they can literally stick a stake in any zombie JCPOA they try to cook up. So I think that has to be the venue that we use to get this messaging out there. Right. And it's it's so horrific when you think about what the people of Iran are going through and what they're telling us and how, you know, to diminish the power of the regime will really be for the betterment of the entire world, and especially in terms of global security. And yet we have to kill it in Congress because our administration doesn't understand that this is a no brainer. Um, you know, my next question for you is this this stuff doesn't sprout up overnight. So obviously what we're seeing on the ground has to have have been. Um, a, a combination of things, but definitely influenced by the Trump era foreign policy in terms of diminishing the regime's um, presence and ability to collect money and all the, the things that, that were filed under the pressure campaign. Can you talk to us a bit about what the Trump administration was able to do in the pressure campaign? Would we be able to replicate this again if we wanted to? And you know how effective can another pressure campaign be at this point? It could actually be more effective at this point. Uh, and of course, it could be replicated. Basically, the philosophy under President Trump was to starve the uh, regime in Tehran of resources until it could no longer sustain itself and would be forced to be what President Trump wanted to do was force them to the table under maximum U.S. leverage and at, get an actually good deal. If, if that were the case. He, he did not take a position on regime change, uh, thinking that this was something for the Iranian people to do uh, if they so chose, but that you know his, his role as commander in chief was to keep the American people safe. This is, this is what, how he chose to approach it. And I think you know what the great strengthening that we could have now, also because of President Trump's policies, is to really truly unite with our Gulf partners and allies and our Israeli partners in the region to present a united front to the Islamic Republic, that there is no daylight between us. The United States is going to support you know, the Saudis and the Emiratis who are taking live fire from the Houthi in Yemen. And we're going to support unequivocally our Israeli allies and the partnership that now exists between those countries. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that those countries and you've seen a lot of outreach from, say, the Israelis to the people of Iran to say that they support them in this fight. So we could be more effective now than we were in 17, 18, 19. 
So a lot of people are experts say that um, since President Biden came into office, and even when he was running as a candidate, he obviously uh, said he bragged about trying to get back into the Iran nuclear deal. All he wanted to do was do a 180 on, on Trump policies, of course. Uh, and then since coming into office, there are parts of the, the their nuclear program in Iran that have progressed so quickly uh, and, and to, to such a degree in, in terms of the number of centrifuges, in terms of the percentage of uranium being enriched, in terms of the capacity, as Rob Malley said himself, of being around the corner from a deal. He said it would take weeks for breakout. Knowing all of this, you know, and, and it basically brings us to the conclusion that a nuclear deal would be moot anyway, particularly one that would, would re reference the 2015 deal. Knowing all of this, how can our administration look us in the eyes and say, this is, this is what we will, uh, this is what we will pursue? And my question to you is, do they know that this is a, a moot point and will not bring us any closer to global security when it comes to Iran's weapons program? Or are they just doing this to appease the Iran regime, give the mullahs billions of dollars to put back into terrorism and play dumb all along? I think this goes back to the original Obama era philosophy that the United States had been mistaken for years by prioritizing Israel and the Gulf over Iran, and that Iran is every bit as reasonable as, say, Saudi Arabia. And you saw that in the rhetoric out of the president during the campaign that has come back to bite him so mercilessly recently, calling the country a pariah, uh, vowing to isolate the crown prince of Saudi Arabia uh, and U.S., uh, any kind of uh, security and uh, energy cooperation with the kingdom. And, you know, this, this, this is born out of the belief that we, the United States could form an equally productive relationship with the Islamic Republic and the JCPOA is the symbol of that. So getting back into it is an article of faith. But as you say, it is just disconnected from reality to try to have these negotiations while they're enriching up to 60% higher. You know, they, they are so clearly demonstrating they are not going to restrain themselves. They are not going to restrain their nuclear program. They're making a mockery of the administration. Len, I'm going to come back to you. You are in office again starting tomorrow morning on the job. What do you do to support the people of Iran? Uh, promise. Um, so, uh, no, I, I, I just, uh, <laughs> there's, uh, we would love that. We would ab absolutely love that. There's, uh, there's, you know, probably very little chance of that happening, but, uh, I actually want to pick up where Victoria left off, which is, um, on the, uh, preposterous state of affairs that we find ourselves in right now, which right. is let, let's, let's talk about the reality. Um, and I think the reality has to be rooted in truth, which is the regime has no legitimacy. So there's no, this is, this is a usurper government. It's uh, holding Iranian people hostage. It is at war with its neighbors. It is the most destabilizing force in the Middle East. Uh, it is a friend of all the dictators and being used by China, Russia to empower themselves. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we actually saw Iran uh, supply Russia with drones recently. So not only is it content on, on wreaking havoc in the Middle East, it's, uh, it's complicit in, in killing Ukrainians too. So uh, that, that is the reality. 
So are we going to live in reality or are we going to pretend that Iranian uh, government is just like any other government like Norway or Finland and, and, and provide it legitimacy? Uh, look the other way as the Iranian regime sits on the UN Commission on Women. Uh, I mean, at the same time that it is literally conducting a war against Iranian women. Right. Um, th th this is this is a symptom of the world living in in a bubble, which has gotten us to this point. If you look at uh, November of 2020, I guess the around election time, the Iranian regime was enriching at four and a half percent or so. Uh, now it's at, as Victoria mentioned, over 60 percent. Right. Uh, that is what happens when you have two years worth of policies that enable and enrich. Correct. The world's right. foremost terrorist uh, entity. But Len, so, I'm going to just, let's cut to the chase. Do you think it's ignorance or by design? I, I uh, my unvarnished uh, perception <laughs> is the Biden administration, just like the Obama administration, looked at the JCPOA as a um, pillar of a religious belief that if only they could they they uh, you know finish that deal then they will solve uh, the Iranian problem and you, if you've heard Secretary Blinken and President Biden talk about you know the deal will put them back in the box and you've heard the State Department spokesperson say that the deal permanently and uh, ir ir irreversibly uh, prevents Iran from uh, attaining nuclear weapons garbage that that is on its face a distortion of reality that anyone who looks at the issue with clear eyes will be able to see. And so, you know, unfortunately, we're in a position where the Biden administration is in discord with reality. And we have to do what we have right. to do on the outside, all of us, the right. Iranian people, the American people, our allies. You've seen demonstrations right. in, in country after country where people are supporting the Iranian uh, people uh, and and uh, uh, you know protesting against the regime's brutality. That is the reality. And so, if I were back, if I were back in the driver's seat uh, and and had any voice in what I could do, I would give the Iranian people every possible means of reclaiming their rights and their destiny. That's what I would do. So I asked you to put on your State Department hat, and now I'm going to ask you to take it off. Because I, you know, the 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 talking point that's thrown around by a lot of Iranians is that it benefits the United States to have this regime in power. What does that mean to you? That that is ridiculous. Uh, the regime is the biggest national threat to our national interest in the region, at the very least. It is working with our chief adversaries in the world, as I mentioned, China, Russia, Venezuela, Cuba. Uh, you know, uh, others, North Korea. Uh, and th that, that, that simply makes no sense. And that, that is a recipe for weakening America, uh, American national security, and undermining our allies and results in a situation where our allies no longer trust us, which in the end, um, you know, bites us, uh, as Victoria said, in, in the back. Right. And well, our foreign policy is doing that anyway, as, as Victoria said, and, and now you you echo the same sentiment. Victoria, I'm going to go to you next. Um, we put you in office tomorrow. How do you start with the Iran problem? 
Well, I'm actually going to uh, twist that a little bit. I'd like to return to office at the end of September during the United Nations General Assembly when we right. were treated to the spectacle of President Raisi of, of right. Iran be given the podium at the General Assembly to rail about the human rights abuses of Canada and the United States and the United Kingdom. Uh, what you do is you revoke his visa, which had never been granted in the first place, as mm -hmm. Len Wells from the State Department. You don't have to. A man's a terrorist. There's an exception for UN visas for participating in terrorism. So, you know, there you go. Start right there. Isolate these people. Don't give them any legitimacy. Freeze off their funding. Don't supply additional funding. And then figure out what the strongest possible human rights uh sanctions you can put on them, starting with Magnitsky. There are others uh, that, that we had applied during the, the Trump administration. Some of them have been removed. Others have been relaxed or just simply aren't being enforced. Don't let those people move around. Don't let them send their kids to college in the United States and Europe. And figure out how you can persuade the Europeans that this is just a horrible idea that's not going to help them at all. And oh, if you want our help with Ukraine, you can help us with Iran. Right. Absolutely. Um, right. It, it's, it's interesting how Ukraine is looked at as an invasion as it is, but the uh, White House won't look at Iran as an invasion of this regime 43 years ago, as the people of Iran are trying to tell us it is. Bijan, I want to end with you. Unfortunately, we were out of time and it went by too quickly. But as an Iranian um, who understands the people who's lived in this country, um, and as somebody who has served in the administration here, what is your message to the Iranian people in terms of their fight, in terms of when they're reaching out and asking for help? Uh, what's your message to them? My message to the Iranian people is that keep up the fight. You're going to win, without a doubt. You've already been victorious in your early fights. Finish it off. You're going to win. Don't listen to the administration. You have many friends in the United States. Look, Victoria Coates, Len Podokovsky, Lisa Daftari, and others. Inside the government, even, you have people who hear you. They're not for just sitting there and doing their expedience work. They're with you. They're with the spirit of the Constitution of the United States. That's the message. But you have to do something. The world cannot be dealing with so many different entities, so many different voices, form a united front. A scholar from inside Iran wrote a plan, said form a single council, make that a model right after the Syrian people's model. They mm -hmm. got acceptance from 130 countries in the world at the General Assembly. There is no veto at the General Assembly. You could make this a very symbolic act and unite the world in your support. Iranian people, form a single council. You will not get there with many, many, many versions of the same thing. The right. world doesn't know who to talk to. My message is not just to the administration here. And I want to answer a quick question you, you asked, you know, how is it? Well, the actions of the United States government, this administration is so ridiculous that people have no choice by giving it the benefit and saying, hey, you're wise, you're experienced. You're a bunch of experienced politicians. You know what you're doing. Therefore, there must be a benefit for you. So it's not such a ridiculous conclusion. It's because of the ridiculousness of the acts of the administration that they're led to that conclusion. Now, our words is not just with the administration. 
institutions, the media, Heritage Foundation can take a very, very uh, special position on this by doing an objective analysis and saying, people are winning. Why are you back in the dictator? Why are you back in this is not good for our interests? What do we say to the people who win tomorrow? Oh, you are winning, but we wanted to help your oppressors. What kind of policy is that? What kind of legacy would that leave behind? So please, uh, we need more institutions in the United States to start echoing the wishes of freedom-seeking people of Iran. Why? Not because Mahsa Amini and Nika, Shah Karami and Serena and others, but because of the interest of the United States. Today, our national security behooves us to stay on the side of the winners, the people of Iran. And they're going to win, Lisa. I assure you of that. Let's hope so. Maybe we can have our next panel on the ground in Tehran one day. Uh, well, in the meantime, I thank you all. Uh, you may not be in the administration, but you're doing wonderful, wonderful work uh, in, in pivotal roles where your voices and your actions and your writings are um, read and supported and retweeted by the Iranian people. And uh, I thank you for appearing on our panel today. And uh, we hope to have you back on the program very, very soon to talk more about Iran and the movement going forward. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Thank Thanks. you, Lisa. Thank you, Victoria.